Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 1088 of the Juice Box Podcast. My guest today has had type 1 diabetes for over 35 years, and she wishes to remain anonymous. This is her story. Please remember that nothing you hear on the Juicebox podcast should be considered advice, medical or otherwise. Always consult a physician before making any changes to your healthcare plan or becoming bold with insulin. If you're not already subscribed or following in your favorite audio app, please take the time now to do that. It really helps the show. And get those automatic downloads set up so you never miss an episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to wear the same insulin pump that Arden does, all you have to do is go to omnipod.com slash juicebox. That's it. Head over now and get started today, and you'll be wearing the same tubeless insulin pump that Arden has been wearing since she was four years old. Arden has been getting her diabetes supplies from US Med for three years. You can as well. USmed.com slash juicebox or call 888-721-1514. My thanks to US Med for sponsoring this episode and for being longtime sponsors of the Juicebox podcast. There are links in the show notes and links at juiceboxpodcast.com to US Med and all of the sponsors. I have had type 1 diabetes for 35 years, actually a little over 35 years. I was diagnosed on August 24th, 1987. How do I know the exact date, you might wonder? I was diagnosed on my birthday. Hey, hey, hey. wow, that's terrific. <laughs> <laughs> How old were you that day? I was five. Oh my God, that's terrible. All right. Five years old and 87, and you've had diabetes for how long? A little over 35 years. Wow. So you're 40? Mm-hmm. Cool. Okay. You were diagnosed on your fifth birthday. You said you had fragments of memories. Uh, tell me what you remember. Um, I remember being in the hospital, and I remember being scared. And I remember being calmed down by other kids who were racing in the hallway um, on wheelchairs. Mm -hmm. And there happened to be an extra wheelchair, so I was able to join in their racing. I remember sharing a room with a screaming baby. And that being very additionally stressful. <laughs> I remember my dad crying a lot. And... My mom was away lecturing in another country, and so she wasn't there for the first few days. But I remember her coming, so I must have been in the hospital for a few days in order for her to to have a memory of her being there. Yeah. Did you have brothers and sisters at that point, or do you now? No, um, I am an only child. Okay. My father is a type 1. Oh. And my parents did 
get pregnant before me and my mom had a miscarriage and it somehow, I don't really know how being that it was my father's side, but it was somehow related to my father being a type one that the miscarriage, I, I guess it just got blamed on him being a type one. That's interesting. Um, my parents tried to adopt. I don't know what year this was. I just know it was years before I was born mm-hmm. because my mother was a full-time uh, working woman who traveled a lot. And because my father is a type one, they were denied adoption and I was their miracle baby, I guess. Well, still are in 87, in 87, you get denied an adoption for the husband being type one. That's interesting. I was born in in 82. So this was probably in the seventies. I see. Okay. You think, have you ever spoken to your father about him being upset that day? Oh yeah. (laughs) My dad is actually a large part of my story, I guess. My father was diagnosed in 1969. He probably had type 1 for many years without knowing it. He grew up very poor in New York City. And he didn't get diagnosed until he got drafted for Vietnam. Hmm. He Apparently, a lot of draft dodgers were adding sugar to their urine. So he had to get tested multiple times in front of a panel making sure that he wasn't doing that. Oh. And that's how he got diagnosed. They were like, okay, so this is legit, and we're sorry to inform you. Yeah. yeah. At least you don't have to go to Vietnam, but you got diabetes. How, and what, what do you yeah. mean you think he had it for a while? Do you think he was Lada? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you can't have it too long. It'll kill you if you don't diagnose it. So, like, he's got to have some help from his pancreas along the way. But was there s- stories that would indicate that he looked back and saw saw bits and pieces of it at times or no? I think a lot of it was a blur for him. He remembers being very thirsty and his favorite thing to drink was Coca-Cola. So clearly that would have made things worse. Um, I imagine maybe he had a long honeymoon phase. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, and... Are you and he similar in personality? Uh, my father passed away in 2015. 2015. Uh, we do have had a lot in common. When I was, I, I think I, I became an independent diabetic at a very young age because of him, mm-hmm. which I think is both a good and a bad thing. Um, as I grew up, I think that a lot of, Things that were normal for him were um, outdated for me. Mm -hmm. And perhaps my care would have been a lot better if I wasn't given like information that he was given. Like, you know, you want to keep your blood sugars under 220 if you can, was kind of like the norm throughout my life. Oh, okay. uh, With him. How old was he when he passed? Early 60s. Was it complications from type 1? Yes. He started having very, very severe uh, hypoglycemic episodes. He became severely hypo-unaware. He would have seizures in the middle of the night uh, quite frequently. And we discovered that some of those seizures involved mini strokes. So he developed dementia. And the last, I want to say, five years of his life, he spent in assisted living. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's terrible. 
Um, how long did it take you to figure out that you shouldn't be managing your diabetes like it was 1969? Diabetes summer camp probably was when those ideas were first introduced to me. My parents actually sent me to a diabetes summer camp, I, I believe is in New Jersey, shortly after my diagnosis, but I don't remember much of it. I remember hating it. I think that I was too young for it. And we didn't try again until I was a teenager. And then it was, whoa, this is the best thing ever, you know, like <laughs> meeting other people like me. How, how old do you think you were when you went back the second time? I want to say 13. Okay. And that was good for you to see other people. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. What, what happens? Do you see people using technology that you don't have or dealing th with things differently and then it kind of dawns on you that there might be more than one way to do this? I think normalizing it in general, like I've always felt this sense of rejection and shame. And I like I always, for as long as I can remember, tried to hide the fact that I was a type one. Mm -hmm. And being in an environment where basically everybody is doing the same things that you are, you know, I felt more out about it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Hey, the shame makes sense, but rejection, how? It's hard to describe. I always hid my my diabetes. Like for as long as I can remember, I, I, I didn't, I couldn't test my blood sugar privately. I just wouldn't do it at all. Mm -hmm. This feeling of judgment, like my machine was judging me. Uh, you know, when I was first diagnosed, we didn't have glucometers, actually. I mean, sure, they came about eventually, but you, you know ketone strips? Yeah, that's how you used to test your blood sugar, by peeing on something, right? Uh, well, ketone strips like to test ketones, but we actually had something similar, but it was blood glucose strips, but you would, like, match the color from the blood strip to the side of the bottle. Okay. And my dad and I, we thought we were so creative, or he did. Uh, would cut the strips in half so we could save money and both use the same strip and use less blood because these test strips required a drop of blood like the size of a pencil eraser, oh, you know? Okay. And then we got our first glucometer, which actually used the same strips. Um, I want to say it was an AccuCheck. And it was the same method, except instead of comparing the color to the side of the bottle, you put the strip in the machine. So we couldn't cut them in half anymore. Anyway, that was kind of a side story. I think once seeing actual numbers was when I started to develop that feeling of rejection and judgment. I see. You know, you're not the first person to tell me they cut the strips in half. Oh, really? Yeah, it's not the first. I, I know you were probably like, this is crazy, but I'm like, no, I've heard that before. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, so when you see a number and it feels like a grade... I'm guessing. And then you yeah. feel you feel like you're failing. Yeah. And then my parents started a um a star chart. <laughs> I wasn't very good at getting stars. So I don't I don't think that was very beneficial yeah. for me. Yeah, you gotta make some of the stars easy to get if you're gonna do that as a parent. There's a there's a pro tip for you. Make sure they get some. Don't just set up and mm -hmm. go one day. Um do you think that your personality leans in this direction? if you don't have diabetes or away from it? I think one thing that I really struggle with is determining whether or not diabetes is the cause of it. 
I see. If it, this is just kind of like a natural behavior for me and where like, you know, like just what my mind does or if diabetes somehow like triggered it mm-hmm. and I can't place like a defining moment, but I do also have ADD and hypothyroid and I just recently uh, learned about um, women with ADD suffering from rejection sensitivity disorder. Uh, this is a very new term for me. I, I think I heard about it for the first time in um, an ADD support group online about a, a year ago. Uh, just reading up on it, it just like it kind of sparked a lot of memories, which is part of the reason why I wrote to you about being on the podcast was that this was a whole new thing for me. Like, oh, well, maybe this memory had something to do with RSD and um, and how I reacted to that situation, you know? Yeah. To break, I want to break this into chunks because I thought what you said a minute ago was really interesting. The idea that you don't, I, I'm changing your words, but you okay. you aren't sure if you're the person you were meant to be or if you're this person because you have diabetes. Is that right? Yeah, you could put it that way. Yeah. And so would I be having these reactions or feelings if I didn't have type one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is your is your thyroid well maintained? Yeah, actually that's been something that has been very level ever since I started Synthroid as a child. Uh my father took Synthroid as well. Yeah. What's your TSH? I don't know that number off the top of my head. Find out. Um, because I think uh, at two or under is most beneficial. And a, okay. and a lot of doctors will tell you, oh, it's four, it's terrific, it's in range. Um, so look at that, because there can be anxiety, um, mood. There's a lot of stuff that can come from a higher TSH and a, an unbalanced thyroid too. So that's worth looking at. Do you, how's your energy? You have good energy or are you tired a lot? I used to hate ordering my daughter's diabetes supplies. I never had a good experience and it was frustrating, but it hasn't been that way for a while, actually for about three years now, because that's how long we've been using US Med. USmed.com slash juice box or call 888-721-1514. US Med is the number one distributor for Freestyle Libre Systems nationwide. They are the number one specialty distributor for Omnipod Dash, the number one fastest growing tandem distributor nationwide, the number one rated distributor in Dexcom customer satisfaction surveys. They have served over 1 million people with diabetes since 1996, and they always provide 90 days worth of supplies and fast and free shipping. U.S. Med carries everything from insulin pumps and diabetes testing supplies to the latest CGMs like the Libre 3 and Dexcom G7. They accept Medicare nationwide and over 800 private insurers. Find out why U.S. Med has an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau at usmed.com slash juicebox, or just call them at 888-721-1514. Get started right now, and you'll be getting your supplies the same way we do. Um, my energy goes up and down throughout the day. I'm not a morning person, but once I'm up and going, then I'm I'm pretty good through the day. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember my energy levels being very uh, poor when I was younger, 
I think because my blood sugars were, were very out of control. Yeah. I did have a very unusual eating disorder when I when I was young. Again, kind of like going back on, well, is was an RSD like kind of affiliated to my eating disorder because unlike other um, eating disorders that I've heard about, like diabulimia and things like that, mine never really had anything to do with weight or weight loss or intentional weight loss, I should say. Right. Um, how did it, how did it manifest? Just lemons? No, I'm just kidding. What, what, <laughs> what, what, what was it? I, I was a binge eater mm-hmm. specific to sugar. I, I don't know how it started, but it, it's, it goes as far back as I can remember. I think perhaps somewhat triggered by, you know, you're not allowed to have sugar. So maybe it was a little bit of a rebellion. Sure. But I don't, I don't remember feeling rebellious. I, I could eat a whole pizza in one sitting. I would eat like a whole package of hot dogs getting home from school. If I had the opportunity to go into a store and buy bags and bags of candy, I would and just eat them all in one sitting. I remember like one of the worst of it was uh, filling an ice cream cone with pure cane sugar and just licking the sugar out of the, the ice cream cone. Oh, my gosh. That's a yeah. dedication. So was I mean, <laughs> I would eat packages of waffles um, and I never I, I wasn't bulimic. I never threw up. I never uh, I never denied myself insulin. Right. I, you know, I always took my long acting. I always took my short acting. I never counted my carbs. I never did anything like that. I would just be like, oh, I just I just ate a ton of sugar. So I'm going to rage bolus. You think this eating, this eating you think was about proving that you can? Like, did somebody tell you not to eat these things at some point? You're like, well, fuck you, I'm going to? Possibly. I, I don't know. But it was, it was binging. It was really bad binging. Right. And it wasn't until I was um, like a young teenager that I realized what, how severe of a problem it was, or, or actually even realized it was a problem at all, you know, because I wasn't overweight from it or anything um i was a subscriber to i think it was teen magazine and there was an article about binge eating and this girl was describing how she just couldn't stop eating when she was in you know like described her her binges and i just read the whole thing and i'm like that's me i do that okay and i went to school the next day i I was probably about 15 because it was high school and um, I was a freshman. Yeah. And I, I went to the school counselor with the article in hand and I said, Hey, you know, I think I've got a a really big problem here. Um, This is me. Like I read this article and this is me. And the counselor literally looked me up and down and said, no, it isn't. You're not overweight. Binge eaters are fat. It just went on from there. I was like, and, you know, I took his answer as reality. I'm like, okay, he's right. I don't have a problem. And I felt embarrassed, ashamed, rejected for being wrong. Mm. And then I was institutionalized for it a year later. I have to tell you that the closest I've come to crying during a recording this week is you saying that the counselor turned you away. I'm, I'm not <laughs> kidding. I mean, to imagine the luck of a young person having an eating disorder, recognizing it through a magazine article, taking it to a trusted adult and like, hey, 
I figured out something wrong with me. I need help. And they're like, shut up. That's not you. <laughs> it's really heartbreaking. I mean, genuinely, I'm, I'm so sorry. I've been wrestling with this thought for a few days now ab- about um, how much how much in the world goes unsolved or how many things go off the rails needlessly because people who don't know are not, don't, don't check themselves. They're they're They feel completely comfortable saying the first thing that comes to their head and not knowing and, um, Mm -hmm. and how that derails people constantly or derails, you know, entire movements, uh, you know, things that people say that they want to um, they think they're being inspiring or they think that they're, you know, knowledgeable and they're wrong. And then something like this happens. And I don't know, it it felt so personal to me that, that that time got wasted for you and that you got lucky enough to trip into an answer. And then, you know, you were that close to being helped. And, and, and then what would you say a year later, you end up in an institution over it? Yeah. Um, so I was having like BKA episodes, I guess, but I didn't recognize them. I was just like, oh, I ate too much. I don't feel good. But again, like I never purged or um, I, I later found out when I was in the hospital that um, my my form of purging was elevated blood sugars, but it wasn't intentional. But that that's why I wasn't gaining weight from yeah. all that food I was eating. Yeah, sure. And if yeah, that's what I was I was waiting for you to say that. But right, your blood sugar was so mm-hmm. high your body couldn't even hold on to fat. So So there was um I was seeing a therapist and I I don't even know where my parents were through all this really. I mean, my mom did travel a lot for work. Maybe I was just I guess I was just really good at hiding it. And my parents really um, put a lot of independence on me, you know, so there wasn't a lot of checks and balances there. So I certainly don't put any blame on my parents to be clear, but I went to a therapist appointment and, and I started throwing up bile in in the middle of the appointment. And the therapist was like, okay, there's something wrong. And I feel like this is a cry for help. And we're taking you to a hospital right now. And it wasn't like an ER. It was like an inpatient, yeah. like mental, mental institution. And they brought me to um, the eating disorder unit, and I was there for two days. Um, and apparently, because I had an overeating disorder without purging, which is something that they really had no experience with, um, it was having an, a negative effect on the other patients in the unit. So they moved me to the juvenile um, mental unit, I suppose okay. they call it. It was like girl interrupted, no joke. Probably the most horrible experience of my life being being there. Hmm. And my my eating disorder wasn't really addressed. It was more ignored. All of the other kids on the unit went on field trips to the candy machines and the soda machines. And I was not allowed to go. I was the only one left behind. And then I did something that was probably like to this day, um, I regret more than anything I've ever done. I gave a girl uh, lancets in exchange for her bringing me back food from the candy machines um, because she was a cutter. Oh, wow. That's some black market trading right there. (laughs) Yeah, that's how bad it was. Did you, do you remember having the thought like, 
I'm going to let this girl cut herself yeah. so I can get food. Oh, no. I, and I reported like as at, right after she gave me the food, I reported her for having sharks. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, look, I got to get these M&Ms somehow. And then I'm going to, then I'm going to save you. <laughs> Don't worry. I'll save you right after <laughs> my gosh. That's, um, that's intense. Like really, really like that's an intense decision. How old were you then? I'm 16. Wow. Well, that's something else. Uh, how long did you end up being there in total? It's so erased from my mind that I'm really not sure. And I could say like three, four weeks and it could have been a week, but felt like that. Right. But I, you know, I think maybe six weeks. Cause I do remember halfway through being allowed to go home for a day mm-hmm. and then coming back. Your parent- but it, I mean, it, it was a really weird experience because like, some of the people in the unit were hard to handle. I mean, like, you know, like strapped to beds once in a while. Like there was actually one moment, um, one night I remember that work to teenagers, it was co-ed. It kind of felt like summer camp when you were having a good day, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. My roommate and I, like we snuck out to like hang out with a couple boys, you know, and we got caught. Uh, she got strapped to a bed and rolled away. I don't know what happened to the guys. And I was thrown in a room, stripped of my clothes, completely naked, like in the, like locked in this room with nothing, like not even a mattress, it was just a cold floor. Hmm. And I just like, thinking about it right now, I'm, I'm like shaking. Like, I can't believe that is something that happened to me. Like, I am a normal person, you know, and that is a story that is in my past. Like, how is that possible? Right. I had an <laughs> eating disorder and you end up in that situation. Yeah. Oh, geez. Oh, what is that? 80, 97. Hold on. Is that in the early 2000s? I want to say late 90s. Okay. Yeah, it must have It must have been like 97, 96, 97. Okay. Jeez. The hell. Well, she. Sometimes you hear people's stories, you're like, I expected more from the world. Like, you know, <laughs> like mm-hmm. I guess not, but Jesus. Uh, well, that'll keep you from getting involved with any kind of like system again, I imagine. You'll avoid yeah. that like the plague. Um, were your parents in contact with you during those six weeks? In 2015, I needed support to start making this podcast, and Omnipod was there. They bought my first ad. In a year when the entire podcast got as many downloads as it probably got today, Omnipod was there to support the show. And they have been every year for nine seasons. I want to thank them very much. And I want to ask you to check them out at Omnipod.com slash juicebox. There was um, like family therapy sessions. I don't really remember much. I remember my dad, I mean, like, he definitely felt self-loathing. I mean, even before any of this happened, you know, this is my fault. This is happening to you. This is my fault that you have this condition, you know? Oh. And, you know, I I think at the time there wasn't really a genetic link, but, um, I mean, both my parents were doctors. So if any anybody knew, it would be my dad. But he was still convinced. He was like, no, this is my fault. It's such a strange thing, isn't it, to think that, because if your dad had blue eyes and you had blue eyes, he wouldn't be like, well, that's my fault. 
Mm-hmm. You, you know, um, I, or my doing. He didn't give you blue eyes, but it is weird how people think about stuff like that. But I understand it. And I mean, it's been obvious since the beginning of your story. He's he's crying in the hospital. In my mind, he's going over, oh, I have diabetes. I did this. You know, like that's, I'm assuming, his his pathway of thought, which is, yeah. I mean, it has to be really difficult to deal with. I, I, I would imagine, you know, for, from his perspective. Um, and then it's probably hard to see things even more so going wrong for you because then you think, oh, again, here we are, the thing I gave her, and, and this is her struggle. Do, did you, yeah. do you feel a moment where, like, this sort of drama, like, is gone from your life? Or do you, does it stick with you constantly? Are you able to move past some of these things? How does... How does all that work? The whole hospitalization part of my life is kind of like almost not a memory anymore. I I really just kind of started thinking about it again because I thought it was relevant to my story to just speak with you today. Okay. But I mean, it has, it has had an effect on me, but I'm almost in denial that it ever happened. Like it just seems so unreal. I see. Something you just don't think about anymore. It just is part of the past. Are you fine? I remember like how they managed my diabetes too when I was in the hospital. It just seemed so archaic as well. You know, like I, I, I had gone back in a time machine again and, you know, they would prick my finger with this javelin and wipe it again with alcohol afterwards. And I, I thought that that was so strange. And they wouldn't, you know, actually push it for more blood until the alcohol itself was dry mm-hmm. and off, more often than not it you know the, the wound would close up again <laughs> so, <Jeez. laughs> it was just kind of so weird how, how did you um learn about the rejection sensitivity dysphoria that's just in the last year for you um i learned about it in a facebook support group for women with add mm-hmm. some people were you know like were saying oh, is this, you know, am, am I being unreasonable with this situation or is my RSD acting up again? And, you know, I commented on a couple of those posts saying, what is this RSD that everybody keeps talking about? And they, you know, told me what the acronym was for. And I started doing some research on it. And I was like, hmm, that definitely sounds like something that I'm afflicted with. You know, I, I talked to my PCP about it and she'd never heard of it. So apparently it doesn't exist. But I, but I think that it is something that's so new that it, it is still questionable whether or not it is a diagnosable thing. Right. I believe it's still up in the air. But if um, you're having the feeling, I mean, does it match the description I'm seeing online? Extreme emotional sensitivity and pain triggered by the perception that a person has been rejected or criticized? Yeah. Is that yeah. it? Yeah. So if you. If, yeah. I mean, it can be, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, like disabling. Yeah. I mean, sometimes there are things that I will not do because of that fear of what somebody will think of me. Do they have to say it or can you just infer from them that they're unhappy or dissatisfied and it'll hit you then? Sometimes it actually something that hits me hard is when somebody does say it. And that's okay. That was hurtful. But because somebody actually did say it, in my mind, everybody is thinking it. Oh, I see. Okay. And then that... I had like um, 
a good friend say to me once, uh, you know, if what was her words, if you had more respect for your diabetes, other people would have more respect for you. And it hurt. I wonder what that and it, means. It, 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 it hurts so bad because I was, there's, I, I didn't know what it meant. And I'm pick apart all the possibilities of what it could mean. And I wrote like a really nice paragraph because this was through Messenger about, you know, I don't really know what you meant by this. I just want you to, could you please, you know, elaborate a little bit more on what you meant by that? Mm-hmm. And she said, you know exactly what I mean. I don't need to explain myself to you. This is not a conversation I want to have. <laughs> did she start, so did she start we're it? Just not fr- we're just not friends anymore. <laughs> I was going to say, I was going to say, what stops you from going, oh, this asshole, and then I'm done with it. To break it down, you sound like you manage your, your disease well. Like, it's not like you're not being respectful of it. Like, this is her projecting something she's thinking onto you, but then you're, you're, yeah. You're absorbing it instead of just going, that's not right. Because you didn't think it was right because you responded to her and said, hey, I don't I don't think I'm doing that. What are you talking about? And I don't know why, what stops you? Have, I mean, I'm sure you've thought about this and don't have an answer, but like what stops you from not just disregarding her? The word others. I think that was the most hurtful part of that statement was others would respect you um, because she wasn't just speaking for herself when she added that word. Oh, like there's a cabal of people who don't respect you somewhere. Yeah. Like we have a lot of mutual friends and now I'm, you know, I just have this in my head. I, everybody is thinking this about me. Everybody, whatever it is that she's thinking about me, they're all thinking that about me now. Oh, oh, I see. Do you really believe that's true? A little bit. She and quite a few of our mutual friends uh, were, were there for me when I started having uh, my severe retinopathy issues, mm-hmm. but they never really gave me the opportunity to explain how it happened and how it happened. Scott was not, I mean, I can say that it was probably a repercussion from my days overeating. How it actually happened, happened was when I started on Dexcom. I started on the G4 uh, when it first came out. A friend of mine from Diabetes Summer Camp that I'm friends with on Facebook had gotten it, and and she knew quite a bit about my history, and she was telling me about it on Facebook, and she said, yeah, you really want to look into this Dexcom. It, it's life-changing. Like, you can see what your blood sugar is every five minutes. And, you know, at this time, I was still struggling to test myself, and it wasn't just about seeing the number on the meter and the meter judging me. Just a myriad of, of reasons that I just wasn't testing. Mm -hmm. But I was totally open to this idea of having a discreet little box in my in my purse that I could pull out once in a while and be like, oh wow, check that out. Yeah. So I'm not making a a show of it and and the information is just mine. And so I got it. And I brought the interesting story was I brought the the receiver the hospital my next cde appointment and i handed it to her and and she's like i've never seen one of these before i don't think i have the cords or the software to download the information and i was like really apparently i was the first one at my hospital to get one because i went out on my own to do it 
Yeah. And they're um, a Medtronic sponsored hospital. Not anymore. They've they've got tons of patients on Dexcom now. Yeah, I bet. But knowing those numbers and having the frequency of seeing like what food is doing to me, um, I started injecting more. I started correcting more. And my A1C was dropping so fast. I like I before I started Dexcom, I was a little over a 10. I was down to a 7.5 in less than three months. I was walking down the street one day and just it looked like looking through a red lava lamp. Mm-hmm. There's dreams of blood in my vision, and I was, I don't know what's happening. <laughs> And the general consensus of everything that I went through and the people that helped me behind my back, if she had taken better care of herself, this is her fault. And the very few people that I've shared with that, you know, I said, actually, this happened to me because I dropped my A1C too fast. This happened to me because I got in tighter control and got better too quickly. Yeah. Nobody told you that you you should have done it slower. That's really Yeah, and I don't yeah. know that it was even really known back no, then. No, I don't because imagine. my endocrinologist was so proud, my CDE was so proud. And then I go see a, a retinal surgeon and he and he just I've been seeing so much of this with this new technology. Hmm. Did they were they able to fix it? I mean, you got some bleeders obviously, but is that under control now? Um, I had a vitrectomy in each eye. Um, and it's been stable for six years. Oh, good for you. Yeah, I, yeah. I. it's funny that as you're telling your story, the people who, if there are people out there judging you, those who would do that, obviously, first of all, they don't have anywhere near all the information. They don't understand the history of it or, you know, what it was like to manage in the 60s, which would have informed your father, who would have informed you. Sounds like your mom traveled a lot. Your dad was around. You're young. You you alluded to something earlier. You never got back to it, but you said that you were given your um, kind of autonomy early and it was good and bad. And what I took from that was the good part was you knew how to do the things, but the bad part mm-hmm. was you were a little kid in charge of a really difficult disease. And yeah, yeah and you don't, how are you really going to see big picture stuff and make decisions and, and uh, adjustments? There's no way for a kid to do that. Um and those people. And I think my parents wanted to give me that independence. I just went in the wrong direction. Well, I mean, that's see, I appreciate you feeling that way, but like from an outsider's perspective, like I don't know what else would you expect to happen to you know for a little kid to be like. I mean, name another thing you'd put a little kid in charge of. You know what I mean? Would you be in charge mm-hmm. of like paying the electric bill? Probably not. You know, like you have to. I don't know. Pressure wash the house every spring. I'm not putting an eight-year-old in charge of that. But diabetes, yeah, sure, they could do that. It's a very, I mean, we we talk about it now because we know better and we see, you know, data. But children with diabetes benefit from their parents' involvement into their early to mid-20s. And that's not something that you got, you you know. And, And it's not like, it's like you said, it's not like somebody's fault. It's not like your parents were, like, malicious. They just, they were doing the 70s thing like you know this is her thing and she'll need to know how to do it so let's get her out in front of it now and teach her what to do except there was so much more to do Mm -hmm. that nobody knew about and i think also that that there was a much higher fear of hypoglycemia 
than hyperglycemia. Yeah. For my dad, for both my dad's generation and a little bit in mine too, especially when my dad started being like hypo unaware. Um, he sometimes got violent. Yeah. Right. And they, so you're trying to avoid that. You're trying to avoid passing out. You're trying to avoid having a seizure. And, and maybe that was the right thing to do at the time. It's the carryover that's always the problem. Like when we leave one generation of care and go into another one, it's the carryover that hurts. Like I get, I get that your dad's fears were what they were based on the technology and the insulin, but then there's something better available and you're still playing by the old rules. That's, Mm -hmm. that's where the, um, the sense of loss comes from. Like there's, there's, because you existed in a time where you were doing a thing and there was a better thing. And that, that, that's where that terrible feeling comes from. Like your dad's fate was of the time he was born. No different than if, I I don't know, people used to have babies and like, you know, they'd have 10 babies to get three of them to live. Nobody felt bad about that at the time because that's how it worked. So you're like, oh, it's sad, but this is how it works. And, you know, people get diabetes in the 60s and they don't live very long. And that's sad, but this is how it works. Um, it's, It's when I hear the stories of the carryover people, like women who were told, uh, there's a woman on here once, I think she was diagnosed in college, and her doctor told her to quit college and go home and enjoy her life because she'd never have a job long enough for it to matter and a man wouldn't want her. Like, that that happened not that long ago. It's crazy. I actually had a doctor say something similar to me, but it was after my my retinopathy and my vision was still very, very bad. Um, I I was and I am single. I live alone. And she told me that I should quit my job so I could get on disability. So I wouldn't have to worry about being able to afford my Dexcom, uh, my insulin pump and my insulin. Uh, I spoke to a woman yesterday who got divorced to get healthcare. And you Mm -hmm. know, you know what it led to an actual divorce. Like they, Um, they were, they were a happy family who split up so that they could qualify for healthcare. And then, you know, they actually split up later. Yep. I actually, um, I, I did go on disability. I followed her advice and I was on disability for two years. Then I found a job that was able to accommodate me. And, and I do, I do have vision loss. And then it turned out I was making too much money and now I'm being sued by social security for like $15,000. Oh, fun. Yeah. <laughs> you you must have had some wacky SA1Cs when you were little, huh? With the with the eating disorder and and the DKA that you didn't know was happening. You must have been in the 13s like up there. I wouldn't be surprised. Um I do think that there was a little bit of enabling when I first went to uh diabetes mm. Broke up. Hold on a second. Sorry. My CIT year. Hey, hey, I'm sorry. You broke up. We little- were comparing A1Cs and I was I'm sorry, you broke up. A little bit of enabling. Can you do that part again? A little bit of enabling um, at diabetes summer camp. Talking to, you know, comparing A1C uh, between 11 and 14, and thinking, well, mine's mine's only in the high 10s. So if they're fine and they're higher than me, I'm fine. I'm killing it. Yeah, look at me, <laughs> beating them by a whole point. 
Yeah. I you know, it's funny. I've heard old timey diabetes camp stories and I've heard as many that are like I found people there and I learned how to do things as I've heard stories of like, oh, you know, I, that's where I learned to be diabolemic because people yeah. people told me how to cut their my insulin to lose weight there and that's where I learned how to do this. I'm like, "Oh, jeez." So, I mean, there's a there's going to be an element of humanity everywhere. And sometimes it's as dumb luck as who you bump into. Like, imagine had you gone to a counselor who didn't think, oh, you eating disorder has to mean overweight. It, you, you would have been better off in that situation, hopefully, you know, but yeah. I don't know. Oh, my gosh. It really is crazy. Do you think there's a way to, I mean, have you left it all behind you or does it still color your existence today? Everything that happened. Um, I think it does color my existence in a different way. I mean, um, I've never actually let go of binging. It, for a while, it was replaced with alcohol. The, the calories from the food I used to binge, mm -hmm. but with less of an effect on my blood sugar. Um, so I did go through... Uh, it, it, was, it wasn't... Terrible. It wasn't terrible, but it, it became a problem. Actually, kind of a side story to that was when I recognized that I had an alcohol problem. It was when I would get withdrawal symptoms from not drinking. So I went to the hospital and, you know, decided I needed a, what do you call it? Like a medically guided uh, detox. Okay. And I, I, I went to the ER for it and waited in the waiting room for probably over 12 hours and I was shaking when they finally took me in and said, we don't do detox from alcohol here. There's, there's nothing we can do for you. So, you know, they gave me some fluids and I, um, I overdosed on insulin on purpose to make them take me in. And so I was admitted and I told my, I, and I, and they did the detox there and I was there for about a week. My endocrinologist came to visit me. My CDE came to visit me. My PCP came to visit me. I told them all what I did. I told them, I said, I took a shot of fast acting insulin to get admitted. And they said, good for you. Hmm. You, you needed that. So I feel like, again, like this is kind of a reoccurring thing in my life. Yeah. I, I recognize I have a problem. I go get help and I get turned away. Yeah. Binging is like, like, I think binging is like a, uh, an indication of depression or anxiety. And it doesn't, it shouldn't matter what you're binging, honestly. Like it just, mm -hmm. yeah, it, that doesn't, that part doesn't make sense that it, like, why does it matter, like, what it is? And how come they could take you if you were dying, but not take you because of an alcohol thing? And Yeah. yeah oh, geez. Um, and, I've been, and I've been able to manage the, the binge drinking ever since. You know, all I needed was that detox, and then I've been fine. Was it, is it alcoholism, or is it just wanting to take something in in great quantity? The second, yeah, I believe. It's interesting. Have you spoken to a therapist about that ever? I've had a really hard time finding a therapist and I'm not quite sure if I, if I'm ready to do like an online therapy. Mm -hmm. um, but there is very little available. I tried a couple of them. Uh, the, the last one I tried, you know, one was probably two years ago. 
Mm-hmm. And she, she said, oh, your father passed of type 1 diabetes. You have type 1 diabetes. It must be so hard for you to know that you're going to die young of the same thing your dad died of. And I was like, okay, I'm not coming back here. <laughs> More people who don't understand. <laughs> what, what backwards part of the country do you live in? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. You know, it's interesting about, about mental health and therapy is um, I was approached by an online therapy company about doing advertisements for them. And I thought, well, that might be helpful for people. Let me kind of just get an idea. I went into my Facebook group, so many people in there. I'm like, would you guys want me to do this? You know, it would come with, uh, like you'd save 10% when you signed up and stuff like that. And like, you know, w- would that be something you were interested in? The amount of people who are like, oh my God, please do that. That would be terrific. I'm going to do that. Thank Like overwhelming response. Like, Caroline, an overwhelming response. So I'm like, all right, I'll do this. So I go back to the company. I'll say, yeah, sure, I'll do it. Like they set me up with a link um, and I put it out there and two people have signed up. And I think it really has taught me the difference between saying, yeah, you know, I probably should go to therapy and actually being able to do it. It, Like, like make yourself like do it. The it's, it's it's an expanse between those two situations. Cause I can't tell you how many hundreds of people were like, please do that. As soon as you put this link Mm -hmm. here, I will be clicking on it. And then everybody, nobody touched it. So it's, it's not an easy thing to get involved in. You know, like, I understand why it's a leap. And then if you make the leap and you get there and somebody so wholly doesn't understand the thing you're talking about, well, geez, like, you know, what are you supposed to do? Your dad died of it. So you're going to die of it. Great. Thanks. Uh, And then and what do you do? You find yourself in the position of educating the therapist. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm paying for it. (laughs) Paying to paying to catch them up. (laughs) Great. Let me do a trailer about diabetes for you. You charge me $40 while we're doing it. <laughs> Terrific. And therapy is not covered by a lot of people's insurance. It's a lot of out-of-pocket cost. So, yeah, yeah you want to you wanna have a, a decent experience when you start. Oh, my gosh. All right. Well, what's the answer? Like, like I mean, you're 40 years old. So, you've been through all of this. Like, what's your wisdom on it? I think that I'm kind of being my own therapist in a way, you know, doing research on, you know, the rejection sensitive dysphoria and something I read in an article about RSD is like, sure, there's no treatment for it, but it it can be, you can overcome it by defining why it's happening. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I don't just, you know, I'm not just having a panic attack out of nowhere right now take a breath and realize why you're having it, what's triggering it. And, and that's been helpful for me. Just kind of um, giving another a, thing that's naming things, helpful. giving them. A yeah, voice. yeah. Yeah. It's also been a little helpful for me to, you know, ha- since having my Dexcom and Omnipod and, and having a history of constantly hiding it and, and not letting anybody know being more expressive about it. Like I, I, I try to, I try to put my placement now in spots where people will see it and ask me about it. And that's been mentally life-changing for me. Yeah, that's excellent. I'm a proponent of loud and proud on diabetes. Like um, just, you know, and, and if you have to start small with it, just peeking out of your arm, you know, your sleeve or something like that, then right on. 
but it's just, it's too big of a part of your life. It's too important to your health to hide because the hiding lends you to say things like, well, I'm not going to test right now because somebody's going to see, or I'm not going to help myself Mm -hmm. right now because I don't want people to know, or like, that's just dangerous physically and psychologically. Um, I think you kind of, I understand if you don't want to, for people to know, but I just think long-term it's a, it's a benefit if you, if you're open about it. Also, the openness is never hardly what you think, you know, I mean, like it sucks that you met people who were like, you know, gave you crap who you thought were friends, but is it not better not to have those people as friends? Like, at least, you know, right. That they're heads. Like, like, you know, you know, I mean, have you met other people who don't care that you have diabetes and don't have big opinions about things they don't understand? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's a, everything's just such a process, you know, that's the part that. Gosh, I can't believe it's about 20 years ago now. I've met a lot of type ones in my town. Have you? That's excellent. Yeah. And I I was surprised. (laughs) (laughs) There you are. I see you people. Uh, No, I think, I think it's terrific. I mean, Arden. I think Arden's only friend with type one is somebody she's she's very close with who's a, a friend she met online, but they've never actually met in person, but they talk and, you know, they're very close. They're both in college now. And it, and I think it's been beneficial for both of them to know each other. It just really mm-hmm. has been, you know, um, I think they met because I think the girl tried to follow me on Instagram and followed Arden by mistake. And that's how they... Oh. That's how they, how they ended up meeting each other. So just it can't be said enough that you need to be able to see yourself in the world around you. It's important, you know. My first, my first friend in this town um, that was a type 1 had the same eye surgeon as I did. And so she went through it all before I did and was very supportive of that. And I was having a follow-up eye exam and she was on Facebook and she had just had a double organ transplant. She had a kidney pancreas transplant. Hmm. And I saw that she was active on Facebook and I said, Hey, you want to, you want to visit her? Cause I'm in the hospital for an eye exam. And she's like, yeah, sure. So I went up to her floor and the nurse said, yeah, she just had a double transplant yesterday. She's exhausted. She can't have any visitors. And I was like, well, I have it on good authority that she's sitting up in bed on her phone on Facebook right now. Are you sure? <laughs> also, I need friends. So, so let's go. <laughs> so, the, so the nurse checked in on her and, and let me in. And she and she was, she was awake and talking to me. And I it was so important to me to see her because I had such a huge question. And my question to her was, do you feel low? Because... I'm thinking, wow, yesterday you were a type one diabetic and today you're not, you know? <laughs> oh, and does 85 blood sugar feel low to you all yeah. day long? But it doesn't. And be- like, and you have a pancreas that's doing it for you. Like my, I, I don't know, in my mind, I thought, I bet she feels low. <laughs> She's got to be dizzy, this girl. <laughs> <laughs> but no, right? Like it's, it's the action. Yeah. It's the action of the insulin that gives you that feeling. Like the fall, mm-hmm. like you ever hear people say, you can, I can feel the fall. And yeah, yeah. I can relate to that. Yeah. It's because that the insulin's moving your blood sugar, yeah, in a way that, you know, is not natural, completely natural to you. So it, it's something you can feel. Um, oh, that's really interesting. You still friends? 
Yeah. That's cool. That's he nice. doesn't have the pancreas anymore, and she did have to get a, another kidney, but otherwise she's doing great. That's cool. Yeah, sometimes the organs don't make it. I interviewed somebody mm-hmm. recently who had to go through a couple before the one they have now that seems to be, you know, holding on. So um, really weird world. How long did she not have diabetes for? I think it was almost a year. Oh, oh my gosh. that's It seems like I can't tell if that's bad or not. Like, you know what I mean? Like if getting the year off is terrific and just I'll take it or mm-hmm. if it's such a letdown when it when you see your blood sugar start creeping up again, you're like, oh, geez. Uh, I've heard the pancreas is such a hard one to keep, though. Yeah, uh, it, it can be for sure. I mean, organs in general. I, like I said, I was interviewing a mm-hmm. guy who's had a number of transplants and he got like eight years out of one and he was thrilled about it. Nice. Yeah, so... Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, is there anything that we haven't talked about that we should have? Something I didn't bring up or something you meant to say that hasn't gotten said? I'm not sure. I think I wanted to talk about my mom a little bit, but... We can. Don't worry. I just That's why I wanted to bring it up. So uh, let me ask you before we start. Are you less nervous than you were an hour ago? Yeah. <laughs> There's a moment when you started cruising. And I was like, oh, she's okay now. And um, I think that at some points, like my ADD kicks in and I kind of go off topic. And then I'm like... Where was I again? Okay, but then I I haven't noticed you go off topic once. Oh, really? I felt like I did a lot. <laughs> no, I okay. thought you were very clear and linear. And I didn't um I mean, if you listen to the podcast, like I didn't do the um I didn't do the pulp fiction thing to you too much. I didn't go back in time and then come back up here to present and go back again, which I like doing. Um I didn't do that mm-hmm. as much with you, but I still thought you were I, I never felt like, oh, what what is she talking about? <laughs> like, I never had that feeling one time. So maybe you're being hard on yourself. I often am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I didn't have a thought like that at all. All right. So uh, what about your mom? When I was nine, we we moved. And I had my first seizure that I remember in the middle of the night. We had just gotten a puppy. My puppy woke my parents up and I slept walked, I guess, into the hallway right outside my parents. Outside your parents. Sorry. Hey, um, hey, I'm sorry. I lost you outside your parents, outside your parents room. Yep. Yeah. And And, uh, my mom called 911. And. Can you guess what happened? The dog complained that the little girl they got her is broken. No, my mom called 911 and got the DDD. This number does not exist in your area. Really? Yeah. So this was in 1991. And 911 was not something that existed everywhere. And I know that's hard to believe, right? Yeah. So my mom um, got a an operator who got her to emergency dispatch, and I came to, uh, surrounded by firemen in full gear, because they didn't know that what they were responding to. Uh, they were all volunteers. I guess they, they gave me some dextrose, brought me to the hospital. But my mom was so impressed by what happened, she she joined the fire department. Really. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's incredible. Also, and uh, you, you're my being... mom 
Hmm? I was just going to say, this is not off topic, but you're reminding me that we all used to have stickers on our telephones with the phone numbers for the police, the fire, and the ambulance. Yeah. 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 Because there was no 911. There are these little square, like two inch stickers square, and they had the three numbers on them. You stuck them to your phone. So you had the, huh, you reminded me of mm-hmm. something I'd forgotten about. How about that? <laughs> yeah. And then your mom just like, let's, was your, I was going to say, was your mom looking to hook up with a fireman? But he, she was married, so that's inappropriate. Yeah, but, yeah. What, but what happened? So, so she became a volunteer fireman? Um, She became a paramedic, yeah. Good for her. She, she was about to retire. She's a doctor. And uh, she, she's a forensic pathologist, I should say. Mm. And she joined the volunteer fire department. And I went to college in 2001. And in September of 2001, my mom was missing in New York City. Wait, how? She wasn't a New York City department, but she was in New York City. She just jumped into action on 9-11. Oh, my gosh. So she was in the area? Yeah. And the fire department she belonged to did go there. I mean, it was in, but they were in the center of it when it happened. They went to help in the aftermath. But my mom happened to be there on 9-11. She just kind of jumped into action. And my dad and I didn't hear from her for about a week. She's fine now. Oh, a week? She was just, was she like hurt or was she just working? Uh, She was just working, but also all the uh, phones were down. Yeah, no, I remember. So she was trying to get in touch with my dad and I. My dad was stuck on... I want to say the Washington Bridge for hours. So I didn't hear from him for a while. My dad was a professor at um, the College of Mount St. Vincent. Mm-hmm. So he was stuck getting out of the city. So, you know, both my parents were kind of MIA for about 24 hours. And then and it was just my mom that was missing. And, and mm-hmm. it, you know, it was September. You don't didn't really have many friends yet being a freshman in college. Oh my God. Yeah, you're just by yourself at school while this is all happening. It's very frightening for people who didn't live through it as an adult. Like we lived in, well, in central New Jersey when it happened, my wife was working in Manhattan for years before that, but had just very recently moved to Jersey city. Her, her building got moved to Jersey city and um, people's cell phones. Like we didn't used to leave our cell phones on all the time. Oh, that's something people know or not because the batteries would die. So you'd, yeah. you'd turn them on to make a call. And, you know, now plugging your phone in and charging it is a part of everyday life. But back then, you, you wouldn't do that all the time. So my my wife is calling me, you know, to say they're evacuating my building. And we're being pushed on foot into, like, past the past the highway. They're just making them walk west, basically, away from the city. And... um. Later, she found out it's because they used her building as a morgue, and oh, um, wow. yeah, they were they were ferrying bodies to her building, which was right on the water, and then just doctors who happened to work in the buildings around were triaging people and stacking stacking bodies up. Um, but the people they pushed out of the building, they just they just basically pointed and they were like walk, and the cops just pushed you. They just kept pushing them away. So uh, my wife and a girl she worked with made their way to the girl's car that was parked in a lot somewhere. And they just finally made their way out and got on the Jersey Turnpike and headed south because she was trying to get my wife home. 
So I mm-hmm. I had to call a family member because Cole was a baby. And I basically it just I was like, I met my father-in-law on the side of the road. And I was like, here's his bottles. Here's his formula. I, I put his car seat in my father-in-law's truck. And I was like, I'm going to go find Kelly. And then I just headed north. But we couldn't, we weren't in contact. So we would pick up the phone at certain intervals and kind of report where we were. And like, no lie, like we saw each other. Um, we worked it out so we could see each other on opposite sides of the turnpike. And then I just found a place to cross over and I crossed over and grabbed her. I think that whole process of driving what would have been a 45 minute ride, an hour ride in a normal day, and then getting her back again, I was gone for about nine hours trying to get her out of the city. Like it was, Mm -hmm. it was really something. And then her friend didn't get home till well after midnight after that. Um, It's just a, a crazy time. And you're, sitting in college and nobody can find your mom and your dad's. Yeah. That's terrible. Yeah. My dad and I spoke every, every night. Remember the first night that we got in touch with each other, we ended the call and then he called me right back and he said, you didn't say I love you. And I was like, dad, you know, I love you. And he's like, yeah, but you didn't say it. And I think from, you know, with your mom missing from now on, like we need to say it before Mm -hmm. we say goodbye. Like every time we speak on the phone. And that became our thing. Yeah. And uh, up until he died, that was always our thing. Oh. Never ended a conversation without saying "I love you." That's uh, that's lovely. Really, mm-hmm. very, very lovely. Um, I I can tell you that the uh, Manhattan is uh, from my house. I don't know how many miles. I can actually figure it out. But um, you could walk out of the back door of my house. And just smoke was just rising up in the air for days. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm a good hour and I don't know, fifteen minutes from the from the city by car. I'm actually looking at it right now. I am I'm forty six miles away. And I could step outside of my house and look up and see smoke like it was next to me, it felt like. It yep, was really, I can believe that. Really insane. So um, well, so you and your father had this nice thing, right? You said, I love you every time. And, um, di- did you ever have the feeling that the therapist tried to give you the, I'm going to die early? I don't know. I've thought about it. I, I think maybe I thought about that even before she said it. Um, but it was, you know, it still wasn't her place to say. So I was still upset with her for saying it, even if I already thought it. Yeah. It's also not accurate, but. Another thing that my father, you know, would say a lot throughout my childhood was, you're so lucky your generation's going to see a cure. You're going to be cured. And I think that that also had a little bit of a detrimental part to my self-care. Yeah. Um, like, oh, I can treat my body like crap now because I will be cured in the future. Yeah. I believed him. You know, it was my dad. I believed him. <laughs> yeah, that's a misstep. I understand wanting to say it, but you can't put that in someone's head because, like, I understand they somebody wants to say that because of a hopeful thing, but I think the mm-hmm. the very problem you just described is the concern. You, you know, what if I that makes people think, well, then I don't have to take this very seriously because it won't be here forever, and that's yeah. that's tough. No, I'm sorry. And my, I mean, my my parents are pretty renowned doctors, and my dad. You know, it wasn't just like, oh, you know, my, what my daddy says is always true, but he had some backup to it, I guess. Yeah, it felt like he knew something. Made it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, if, if somebody's going to know, it'd be this guy. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, 
Well, are you interested in, like you said, you've been single and you live alone. Is that something you are you, is that something you're doing on purpose or are you looking for somebody or what are you thinking about? No. Um, I think that that's another thing that, you know, I, I've been struggling with. Um, I think that some of my other behaviors tend to push people away. Um, I do have tenants, so I'm not alone alone. I do have trouble asking for help though. So sometimes even if my, one of my tenants is home, I, I've, I've called an ambulance. Can but I, no, I'm not single on purpose. I guess is a, can, can I ask you a question? You just said like some of your actions can push people away. Do you have examples? It might just be in my head trying to think of an example. I, I mean, I, there, I guess the only example that really comes to mind is something that happened when I was in a relationship where I was having quite a few low blood sugars and once in a while didn't have enough with me. I wasn't prepared with enough to treat it and my significant other had to go out of his way to to get something for me and it was uh, a huge inconvenience Hmm. and i think that had a large impact on our relationship would a therapist say that you were looking for somebody to take care of you the way you didn't feel like you were taken care of taken care of by a child not really. No. But, well, I mean, a therapist might say that, but yeah. I want to say I am capable of taking my care of myself. Oh, of course you are. <laughs> yeah, no, no, of course you are. But <laughs> is there any part of you that's just like, what if, wouldn't it be cool if somebody else thought about this and not me? I bring it up because we uh, we just saw the kids recently and um, it was Arden's spring break. So Arden went to where Cole is. We all met there and Arden spent the first couple nights at Cole's apartment. And then we were like, look, you can, you know, you can stay here, obviously, or come back to the hotel, like what mom and I got, whatever you want to do. And like, you could see, like, they were having a good time. My son wanted her to stay. And she's like, Cole, I'm sorry. She's like, I'm going to go back to the hotel so dad can take care of my diabetes tonight. Like, she's like, I just want a day off, like from this. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I mean, that was a very conscious statement. But I wonder if if that doesn't happen subconsciously, where you're just like, oh, I wish somebody else would just remember to bring a juice box so i don't have to do it <laughs> you know like that kind of thing i don't know it's uh it's interesting but- well in a way getting um a dexcom and an omnipod was that for me mm-hmm. yeah give it to give it to them right yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 well i think you should date you seem lovely and i'm sure somebody <laughs> would be very lucky to be with you so i got i got set up on a date a few years ago and uh, my friend introduced me to her friend and I like for the life of me, you know, you're a great guy, but I don't understand why my friend thought that you and I were compatible. And then he took out his insulin pump. Oh, he had nothing else in common, but that and there was nothing else. But that. And I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's not always that hard. My wife and I like, we don't have the same sense of humor. We don't like, like, you know, she thinks about things differently than I do. And I mean, it, it still works. You know, it's just, uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. Anyway, I say uh, give it a try. It's up to you. Of course, I'm not in charge of your life. But um, I, again, I think somebody would be lucky to be with you. So thank you. Yeah, it's just course. getting out there and finding a place to meet people, I guess. I'm a little skeptical of the online dating thing. Mm, it's not that hard. You're a girl. Boys will just okay. like, yeah, you just, just, you know. <laughs> Take a shower, look half clean, walk outside. One of us will be like, hey, what's up? <laughs> We're very easy to impress. You don't have to try as hard as you think. <laughs> 
really not that hard. I think clean and looking in like both eyes going in the same direction would be enough. (laughs) (laughs) And then your loveliness will shine through and you'll find people. But yeah, I don't know. So I can't imagine, honestly, like I, I don't understand dating. Like I've dated when I was younger, when people were around. I remember my cousin telling me as I was graduating from high school, my cousin said, wait till you see how hard it is to meet girls when you're not in school anymore. And I was like, oh, what's he talking about? But man, he's right. And so, you know, I know it's hard. Like, it's like, how do you really, how do you get around somebody enough to get a vibe for them before you try it out? You can't, right? So you just kind of jump in cold. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it seems like you you might have a little trouble with like that. Like, I mean, you were really nervous just having, like, being on this in the beginning. So, like, that initial, like, how yeah. do I, yeah, it's t- I, I can see where it would be hard. How about at work? Is I- that a bad spot? Probably inappropriate for where I work now. But I mean, there's been some interest in previous jobs, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. There was one, there was one, um, I mean, I guess it's not really dating related, but um, this place I was working it was kind of set up with a bunch of cubicles. And this new guy started about the same age as me and at the time. And some coworkers came up to me and said, hey, so-and-so, like, he really needs your help. And I thought that they meant like training him on something, mm-hmm. on a computer program or, or whatever. So I, I go over to him and he is staring at his computer screen. He's not responding to anything I'm saying to him. And somebody shoves a juice bottle in my in my hand and says, he has the same thing as you. Fix him. <laughs> big help. Thanks and, a lot. <laughs> but, and I was just, and he was a big guy. I mean, I like basketball player straight from college kind of size you know Mm -hmm. and I was thinking about how my dad would get violent sometimes and I I just took a few steps back and said somebody call 911 don't find the other diabetic in the room (laughs) what if I get low during this what's gonna happen then (laughs) (laughs) and then like I don't know later on people tried to play a matchmaker between him and I but um and friends we did it's nice all right. Well, all right. I'm done trying to help you. <laughs> I really do appreciate you coming on and sharing all this with us. Thank you. Did you have any questions on anything else? Um, I don't think so. Like it's, it's more of an emotional journey for me when people tell stories like this, like I, I leave it. Um, I think no differently than the people listening. Like I, I, I feel like I started with you when you were five and, and, uh, I ended here. You seem happy, which makes me happy. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that. No, no, I don't think that there is anything that you didn't answer along the way that I that I. I mean, I wondered about a lot of things while we were talking, but they all came out during the conversation. I feel I feel pretty good about it, actually. So I currently uh, maintain myself at about a seven, A one C. Okay. I feel like I do have room to improve, but not too drastically or rapidly <laughs> yeah right um i'm on the omnipod five now and I, it's going well for me good so that's where i'm at that's excellent good for you I, comfortable and happy is uh is a perfect place yeah yeah do you think you'll be in the sixes i think now that um i mean it's only been a month since i've been on the omnipod five mm-hmm. but i already have such a reduce a reduction in my fear of getting low 
that I feel more comfortable being in the lower 100s where I used to, I used to eat like a little bite of chocolate or something if I was 99 or 100. Now you wait to see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Because I know like my pump isn't going to let me keep dropping. So I feel more comfortable and um, I'm already at a time in range at about 70% time in range. Good for you. Where it used to be like 30, 40. I should try to slice off about 10% of the confidence that I gave my daughter and give it to you because there's times I'm texting her. I'm like, Hey, this is not holding up. You really like, could you eat something please? And she's like, it'll be fine. I'm like, I I don't, it's not, I'm watching it. It's not going to be fine. And she's just like the opposite of that. She's like, it'll be all right. It'll be all right. And then when it's not, she's like, oh, all right. And then she handles it. But there's moments when she's like 75 and I'm looking at trends and I'm like, Arden, this is going to be 60 in like 15 minutes. And and mm-hmm. she's like, no, nah, it might be all right. She's like, I, I, the algorithm's trying to fix it. I'm like, I know, I, I see, but I don't think that's how it's going to go. And I wish I could just take a little bit of that and just I'll slide it over to you. Because it, it sucks to hear that somebody um, is still like, it has your level of understanding, but because of past situations, like you're, you're still more comfortable around like 120 or 130, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think you'll get there. I mean, and I think the algorithms do a really good job of, of mimicking that confidence that you're talking about. Like, well, at least this thing, the way I tend to think of it is I know it's not a hundred percent. I'm not going to get low, but I know there's a thing helping me, to stop from falling like a stone. And that that's mm-hmm. that's pretty helpful. Like, you know, like the idea that it's been taking my basil away for 45 minutes because it's predicting this low. I've seen Loop do it. I'm sure, you know, uh, Control IQ and, and all of them. Like they're trying to stop like a drastic low. And there's something, I don't know, there's something more comfortable about a drift to 60 than like, hey, I'm 90 and then 10 minutes later I'm 60. That's a... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Different world. So I used to be, um, a two to three juice box a night person before starting Omnipod five. I was on Omnipod arrows. Wow. Ever since starting Omnipod five, I haven't had any juice boxes. I can still be in the club though. Right. Oh, for course. Sure. But this is such a, that's such <laughs> a, a wonderful, like improvement. It's a big difference. Yeah. 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 No, that's fantastic news. Oh, wow. Good for you. I mean, just the calories alone, but the 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 unbroken sleep is a big deal, and exactly. um, confidence when you're sleeping, and that's all like really, really important. Oh, I'm glad for you. And I don't feel the need to go to bed with an elevated sugar. Good for you. That's a, that's a huge leap. And how long have you been doing it? A month. Oh my gosh, this is terrific. Yeah, you'll have yeah. you'll be in the sixes in like three months probably. <laughs> yeah, Thank ju- you. Yeah, no, just from that. Just from the the thing. How long have you been listening to the podcast? I started not too long after you started. And then I kind of forgot about it. <laughs> Sorry. Don't worry. And, and I went like a few years without listening. And then I picked it back up when I started considering um, upgrading my pump. Cool. Oh, that's so great. probably uh, about a year ago, I picked it up back up again. Oh, good for you. Wow. You were there in 2015. You were listening? Yeah. Wow. Jeez. I thought I was talking to myself back then. Thank you. It's <laughs> <laughs> terrific. The first year of the podcast had as many downloads as uh, yesterday had, which well. is really bizarre to say out loud. Um, but I really, <laughs> I really thought that like, and I, and that first year, my wife's like, "What do you think?" I'm like, "It's going great." 
I was like, I can't believe I got 25,000 people to listen to the show this year. Like, that's so cool. Mm-hmm. You know, I was, I was all <laughs> excited. And, um, and, uh, now like there are days that go by, like if there's like, the like, I don't know, like holidays pop up and you get like a little reduction on a holiday or something like that. I'm like, where'd everybody go? <laughs> My wife's like, what are you talking about? She's like 23,000 people downloaded the show yesterday. And I was like, I know, but I was really expecting 24, 24 and a half. And she's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, I have standards. But that's, it's very interesting to hear that somebody that was there in the beginning, that's very, very interesting for me and cool to hear. Thank you very much. Yeah, you're yeah, welcome. Of course. Oh, the, uh, so- the sound quality is improved. I was going to say, <laughs> at least I bought a better microphone. I had a great microphone back then. I just didn't know what I was doing. And this one, Gosh. this one's better. This microphone is so cool that if I just go a couple of steps away, it won't pick my voice up. And so in a scenario yes. when I don't have access to a recording studio, you still get a good silence around my voice. Um, with this microphone, I wish I would have. Oh, I see. Yeah, I wish I would have thought to to do it sooner. Like the other day, I was recording, and a trash truck went down the street, and the microphone didn't pick it up. I was like, "Oh, this thing's terrific!" <laughs> but um, oh my gosh, yeah, I uh, we're doing the best ofs now, and people are really enjoying it, which is something I, I did it. And I was like, "I wonder how this is going to go over." But we're running like a best of episode once a week. And I'm getting a lot of really I've heard a couple of them come up this past week. Yeah. yeah. And I'm getting good feedback from people. But it's the sound. Like when it pops up and I hear that old microphone, I cringe. I'm like, ugh. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, it's cool. All right. Well, thank you very much. I'm going to get lunch. Are you thinking <laughs> Wait, that this is an after dark oh, episode? Or, uh... Good question. <laughs> I had this thought about 45 minutes ago. And I don't think it is. Cool. Yeah, I don't think it is. Um, I, I, and the you know, I, I try to say this every time it comes up, but I don't love that the After Dark episodes are called After Dark episodes. It's not a function of something I would do. It's a function of people listening. So I, what I learned is, is that people need uh, a warning sometimes, and that mm-hmm. not everybody's cool hearing about like a heroin bender and a, and you know. And stuff like that. I don't see it that way. Like, I wouldn't mark any of them like that. But I don't know. I mean, you had a, an eating disorder, but I don't see that that's, you know, something. Triggering. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I no, I don't I don't see this was an, as an after dark. Do you think so? What did you think? Um, I didn't think so either. But, you know, I was just kind of curious. Yeah, no, I wondered about it, like I said, about 45 minutes ago. And I, I, I didn't write down anything or or have any thoughts that would make me think that way. So, no, I don't think so. All right. Cool. Great. Excellent. Hold on one second for me, okay? Sure. I'd like to thank my anonymous guest for coming on the show today and sharing her story. If you'd like to wear the same insulin pump that Arden does, all you have to do is go to omnipod.com slash juicebox. That's it. Head over now and get started today, and you'll be wearing the same tubeless insulin pump that Arden has been wearing since she was four years old. A huge thanks to U.S. Med for sponsoring this episode of the Juicebox podcast. Don't forget, usmed.com slash juicebox. This is where we get our diabetes supplies from. You can as well. Use the link or call 888-721-1514. 
Use the link or call the number, get your free benefits check so that you can start getting your diabetes supplies the way we do from U.S. Med. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back soon with another episode of the Juicebox podcast.